God, I'm convinced that there are some in this room that are surprised at finding you great in this moment. God, maybe we started singing a song that we know so well, and God, there are times you overwhelm our souls, you wash, you wash our mind, you clear our eyes to behold your beauty, to behold your majesty, to capture the reality, God, that we're in relationship with you, that we can sing with you, God, of, of what our heart's deepest longings are for, and you surprise us, God, even in church where we think we're coming to behold your beauty and to call out your praise. And so, God, we just thank you. We thank you for meeting us here already. And, Father, right now, as, as we open the word, as we look to what you've written down because you think it's really important, God, I pray that you would give us a spirit of meekness. I pray, God, that we would be quick and ready to just do whatever you prompt us to do out of this morning and to become. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open up to Luke chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to invite you to sort of come on a journey with me back to middle school. And for some of you, that's, that's the anticipation I thought I would get. This is a, this is a journey fraught with danger. <laughs> For some of you, it's a, it's a very long journey back to Judrai. <laughs> For some of you, it's a little bit shorter. But in all seriousness, I, w- I want to take you sort of emotionally back there, mentally back there for a second. If it helps to close your eyes and not turn to the scriptures and not get yourself ready to take notes, whatever you do. But I want you to sort of like get there mentally, however you need to do that for a second. And here's what I know to be true, um, that for most people... Middle school's hard. There's a real difficulty to it. Um, maybe your brain is going to school and sort of uh, some of the dynamics that go on there. Maybe some of you grew up in homes that had very powerful influence on you for good or for bad. Maybe there was a defining moment or a defining action or a defining rejection uh, that, that went on in these years. What I know is this, middle school is just hard. It's hard for a lot of people. Some people say this to one another. Oftentimes it's said from an adult or an authority figure to a child. And often people want to say this to middle schoolers more than other age groups, and it's this. Would you just grow up? To which the middle school probably is thinking this. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. It's hard. There's a ton of forces working against me. Most of the times when I've heard, would you just grow up or said it or thought it, it's not a very helpful tool for assisting that young person to grow up. That's usually a barb fired at a kid in annoyance, in impatience, in something else. Here's what I know about growing up. No matter what our backgrounds are, what country or county we grew up in, there are forces working against you as you sort of walk through this part of life. Let me throw out a few that sort of come to mind. I can remember distinctly lockers being a problem. We didn't have lockers at Country Lane Elementary School. All of a sudden we have lockers at Rogers Middle School. I had to suddenly switch classes and know where I was supposed to be and have a certain amount of time to get there. There are embarrassing and untimely changes to your body happening during this time. 
guys in particular have to deal, <clears throat> excuse me, with voice change. <laughs> and, and it's not just in the movies. It happens at the worst possible time. There are unfair and uncooperative growth spurts that happen or lack of growth spurts that happen. Everyone's growing at a different rate and often male and female grow at a different rate, of course. There's this huge effort to fit in. I was a middle school pastor for a lot of years and just served with that age group. I love that age group. And it's funny because even those who were like rebelling against that, do you notice that the rebels all look exactly the same? I mean, in, in, in their indifference to fit in to what's normal, they all look exactly the same. I'm like, looks an awful lot like just another flavor of working really, really hard not to stand out and be too different from anyone else. Things like bullying and bowing to peer pressure are just a daily reality. What I knew as a youth pastor coming in to talk to kids midweek who had just been at their public, Christian, or homeschooled environment is that when they were all sitting here, even if they had eyes on me, I could get them eyes up front. I could do some techniques, you know, whatever we did to say, like, let's make sure we're here. I knew this, that they weren't present necessarily with me if they just were looking at me. There's a, there's a real weight of thinking, man, everyone in this room is staring at this pimple on my cheek right here. So, so there's, there's not a thing I could say that would pull them out of that. And, and so it was, it was a work of God that people got anything out of junior high messages because there's this crush of like the whole world is focused on me. And for some, they take that and they think it's a good thing. For many, that's a really bad thing. And so it actually blocks other truth messages and things that are going on. Here's why I wanted us to kind of go there emotionally is because of this. It's really powerful that Jesus walked through the middle school years. I mean, I don't know what your mental picture of Jesus is, whether it's him coming back, you know, in power and glory. We just came out of the Christmas season where he's a humble baby. Very few of us go to those middle, sort of awkward, difficult years of junior high. That's not our mental picture of Jesus. Babies are cute and cuddly and, you know, uh, and all of that. And, and the adult Jesus, like when he comes on the scene and does all these things, like, like there's a lot written about that. But, but this morning, our text takes us right into these middle school years of, of Jesus. And, and it's, it's really powerful to see that and to understand God did not send a fully formed human being. He started with, as a baby. And that baby, as he grew into maturity, passed through middle school. Obviously, middle school is not only a hard stage for kids, but for parents to go through as well. I had some parents that legitimately would have taken up someone on the offer of, you know, you just mail order your child at the end of fifth grade um, to a place, and then you get them back at some time, you know, maybe their junior year or something, and we just skip some of these years. And so parents go through a ton of trauma as their sweet Johnny or sweet Heather, let's just pick a random name, all of a sudden begin to pull away and have ideas and really begin to question, really begin to be their own person. It's all God's design, and cognitively we can know that, but these are difficult times. Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. And what I want you to see is I want you to see sort of bookended 
in this story. It's a really popular story. We, we, we think about it a lot because it's the one story we have of Jesus' childhood. It's Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple. But I want you to see sort of bookended here. Verse 40 says this, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now fast forward to verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So if you were to circle the word grew and increased, you would, you would see these are developmental years. These are the years where, where you go from, from, from being a baby and a child and then a, a young man and then into a fully roped in person of the adult community. These four areas of growth in verse 52 are massive. He grew intellectually. That's growing in wisdom. He grew physically. That's growing up in stature. He went through the physical stages that are kind of awkward and tough to deal with. He grew up spiritually in favor with God. He grew up socially in favor with man. So we don't have too many data points on what those stages look like. So because we have this one as 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, it's really, really powerful and very revealing for a few different reasons that I'm going to touch on today. So he's 12 years old at the temple. What people have wanted to do, and some have actually put in writing, and and it, it, it causes some confusion even, but is make up and fill in the gaps that the that the biblical writers leave for us. So because there's no data points, people come in and fill in. It's kind of fun to sort of think through these a little bit. Um, you know, just thinking about Jesus, and uh, I sort of think of Dash from The Incredibles, where, you know, like, how much of Jesus' power was there and accessible to him that he held back, Right? And, and so when, when Jesus was there, was he, like, was he always picked first? Like, guys, it's a huge thing to play sports, and a lot of times we'll line up and start picking. Was he always picked first? Imagine playing one-on-one basketball with his dad. I'm not sure they had basketball back then, but let's just imagine. Like, did Jesus always win? Or did he grow into that? Imagine Jesus coming into his dad's carpentry shop and looking at dad and going, almost, dad, keep at it. You'll get it perfect one day. So it's kind of fun to think about, like, how did Jesus emerge from child to adult? It didn't just happen in the blink of an eye. There was this daily rhythm to it that we don't really know that much about it. So while it's sort of fun to, to muse about this and, and, and think about, you know, sort of his powers, there's actually a more serious thing underneath all of that. And it's this theological reality that, that's right in front of us. We've already looked at it, obviously, with the incarnation. But here's the question underneath that. How human was Jesus? And how divine was Jesus? How human was he really? And how divine was he really? Here's something Luke's clearly not trying to do. He's not trying to quench our curiosity. He's trying to provide us with certainty. So under direction of the Holy Spirit, we don't have tons of data points about his childhood. So the fact that we have this one, man, it's good to dive into it and say, what, what should we glean from it? What should we get from it? Here's what detractors say then and say now about Jesus. They deny his deity. They say really silly things like this. He was a good teacher. 
Which, of course, is nonsense because if he's going around claiming to be the only way to God and then claiming to be God and claiming that he's going to rise from the dead, that's not good unless it's true. So his detractors deny his, his divinity, whereas believers deny Jesus' humanity. Particularly after he left the earth, within a few um, sh- very short period of time, his humanity began to kind of almost wash away and fade away, like some you know Renaissance painting that that isn't preserved. And, and so we turn, we have this sort of caricature of like super Jesus. So here's a hymn that we sing: "No crying he makes." Right? Well, that's an interesting thought. I mean, not to be crass, but let's dive into that. So no pooping he makes, because that's unsightly. We wouldn't want that. No spilling he makes. And if you live with toddlers, so, so we have this caricature of Jesus of like, you know, that all these paintings, I'm, I'm reading this book on Leonardo da Vinci right now, and there's a PDF with all these different things. So everything of the Holy Family, glowing, lots of light coming from behind, you know, um, uh, there's always a halo around Jesus so we don't mistake who he is. And that's sort of this, this picture that we have. And what that's doing is it's, it's denying his humanity. Here's what Luke does, and he will do this all through the book. He does not leave it as either or, but both and. And there's a mystery and a tension to that. That if your brain immediately, when I said, how human was Jesus really, and how divine was he really, some of you know the answer. You go right to the, to the answer, like, I already know. He's fully God, and he's fully man. Now, let me tell you, that's, that's where I've landed, too. I think that's a true statement. But maybe it's been a while since you sat with the tension of that. Maybe it's been a while since, you, since you've wrestled through you know, sort, of, sort of what that even means. Let me, let me give you a, a technical term, and I hope to give it to you um, so that it's uh, helpful and not just some weird thing that, that, that tickles, uh, tickles your, your mind. But, but hypostatic union is sort of the technical term. I'm advancing and this isn't going. Can you click uh, one forward for me, I believe? If he can't do it, we're all in trouble. Because, Okay, we'll, we'll get there. Hypostatic union is a technical term that describes the union of Christ's humanity and divinity in one hypostasis or one individual expression. This is really, really important, isn't it? Because if he's not one of these, then there's just sort of worlds of scripture that are now lying or falsely testifying about the Messiah. I'm going to leave you to, to research this more on your own if this is your cup of tea. But, um, but there's something really, really beautiful. I love when science catches up to, like our abilities to see, catch up to what the scriptures have said for a long time. Built into our universe is this little metaphor of Jesus Christ being both God and man in one individual. So I'm glad Marco's not here. Marco uh, works in the area of physics, and so that would be very intimidating to have here. Actually, I would have picked his brain. But bottom line is this. There, There were sort of two competing and contradictory ideas or pictures of how the world is put together, and it came in the form of wave theory and particle theory. So wave theory, we think of sunlight, we think of sound waves, we kind of know how that works now, and just water. We see that work with water and waves, right? So that's wave theory. And then particle theory would be something like a boulder, a speck of dust, or an atom. And for a long, 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 long period of time, people thought it was one or the other. 
And then technology came to a place where we could start to look at this and see things. And around the time of Einstein, they began to realize, wow, it's not one or the other. It's actually both and. And we're actually running tests now that we see. It's not, it's not one or the other way of describing the universe. And here's something that Albert Einstein described, um, and it beautifully fits the incarnation. Separately, neither fully explain the phenomena, but together they do. So to try to say our world is built on wave theory and that's how everything functions and moves and has its being. Uh, People would say, no, it's particle theory. And think about that. Neither one of them fully explained. So if you look at Jesus, this is a really helpful way to think about the incarnation. To just look at his humanity, which may be how many of you started out in this journey. I don't believe all that garbly goop about him being supernatural, whatever. I think there's a lot to his humanity that's just really noteworthy, and I think people just kind of get it in their minds that he's something more. But to just look at humanity, Luke, Luke shatters that. But to kind of go over here and deny his humanity and think, well, he's just, he's just a supernatural being. Again, the gospel writers come and shatter that. So neither human nor divine alone describes who Jesus is. Together, it does. So I'm going to read our passage, starting in verse 41, and I want you to watch for a few things. These are the very first recorded words of Jesus Christ. Think about a movie, think about a play. The very first time a character comes on stage, don't you think the author is sort of paying attention to what impression do we want to give? what's, What's the first line going to be? So again, under direction of the Holy Spirit, listen to the first words of Jesus. Consider the setting. Consider his age and sort of the context. His first words are this, I must be in my father's house. Right away, we get a sense of his mission in life. I must be. We're going to read on. It's going to say, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then there's going to come a point. My time has come. At the very, very beginning of Jesus, we're introduced to his work, but also an awareness of his identity. He says he's in my father's house. Fast forward in your brain anywhere in the Gospels. Does this get him in hot water later on? Totally. Culturally, this is akin to saying, so you're making yourself equal with God. Twelve years old! Think about that. So in the very first words of Jesus, watch for this as we read, his mission and his person Come front and center. Verse 41. Here's what it says. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey... But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, first of all, don't be too quick to judge those who may have left children at church. 
This has happened to me a couple of times, totally truthfully. Now, particularly as they get a little bit older. I've never left an infant at church. I've never even left one of my toddlers at church. A little bit of applause and encouragement, please, because that could happen. I'll tell you what, though. I've left late elementary and middle schoolers at church. I mean, this is sort of the time of life when, uh, sort of, you know, uh, not to get too deep into this, but as they would have traveled, they would have wanted to travel in groups. So even as they discovered, you know, at bedtime, like, hey, there's no Jesus, they probably didn't turn around right then. Why, like, why three days? That sounds a little disturbing to our, our parental sensibilities. Hop in the minivan and get back there. Well, it w- would have been dangerous probably at nighttime, right, to, to go travel right away. So maybe they stayed the night with the group for safety. And even as they were walking, think about some of the factors that, that might have been there. Middle school is a time when it, he's not a child necessarily. Is he up front with the women and the young children traveling in that group? Or is he back with the men? As a 13-year-old, he's going to be a full member of the Jewish community. So 12-year-old, it makes sense that maybe they come and bring him and he participates a little more in what's going to become a, a regular part of his adult life being brought into the, the male uh, adult Jewish community. It's classic. It's beautiful to go back and go, I remember those middle school years. We even call it middle years. Like, I'm not even sure where I am. Being a junior high pastor was great because sometimes a little child would show up and I'd be interacting with, with this person. And in a flash, an adult would be sitting before me. Giving adult-like reasoning and, and questions and answers and insights. And, and then middle school is great because sometimes like in the same conversation, both child and adult would go away and there's like no one home. You know, I'm knocking on the skull. Like, is anyone even there? That was all in one conversation with a middle schooler. Consider this fact. There are some, if, if any of you have more than one child, you know this. There are some of your children that if you don't know where they are for three minutes... It causes an anxiety in you. Where are they? What are they doing? Much less three days. Imagine raising the Savior of the world. I don't think no crying he makes is an accurate statement about him. But I do think this. The only thing that set Jesus apart was that he was without sin. So consider a kid by age 12 that hasn't caused you any doubt, and never been caught in a lie. That that hasn't stirred up the other things that just normal kids do. How long is that leash going to be with that 12-year-old? Probably pretty long. Some parents are really, you know, proud after their first kid because they got like a super easy first kid. They're like, parenting, easy. I love that because God always, it seems like God always sends them another kid. Oh, Yeah. Here comes little Joey, you know, whatever. And you're like, okay, I repent. <laughs> Imagine this from Mary's vantage point, by the way. She has one jo- job and she's lost the Messiah. Like, how panicky is that? I mean, I know this is the Savior of the world. I don't even know where he is. <laughs> Utter fail. All right, so not only are his first words uh, concentrated on his mission, this whole idea of I must, but also on his identity. He makes this huge statement right in front of his adoptive father, Joseph. Catch this, verse 48. And when his parents saw him, parents, plural, so mom and dad are together, 
And they were astonished. So again, they're together in the temple finding him. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, again, three indicators that it's mom and dad sitting right there in front of them, in the temple. Kind of a big deal. And Jesus' reply, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So as it is today... Um, Middle Eastern culture is a shame-honor culture. So the worst thing you could do to your family is to shame them and dishonor them. And if you want to throw, like, you know, bonus points on that, do it publicly. If you want to throw on bonus bonus points, do it in the temple. And as it is today, it was then, and that is this. Men do not like to be disrespected. You can do a lot of things to a guy, but you watch hardwired into a man is getting dissed. Do it publicly? But there's no teen angst going on in Jesus. He's not saying this to sort of do a, do a, do a dig at his, at his earthly father, his adopted father, Joseph. He's making a clear statement. So what we know is at least by age 12, he's totally conscious and totally aware uh, on, on some level, I think he still grew into this even, of his identity and this unique relationship he has with his father. <laughs> you, I, I just kind of wonder at the conversation in the car on the way home from church. Some of you have had this. I, I grew up in church. So, so there's a veneer sometimes that goes on at church. We're supposed to all look nice and prim and proper. We're supposed to behave and, and have these things go on. And there's pressures we sometimes put on ourselves and sometimes other people put on us. And you get in the privacy of the car. <laughs> I didn't behave super well in church all the time. There can be, how dare you? What were you trying to do? Why were you embarrassing us? Why were you acting up? Sit quiet at church. We don't have the rest of the journey home. But man, there must have been some interesting conversations as Mary and Joseph pondered these things, stored these things up, had dialogue with each other about what is happening. I don't know what your favorite class in junior high was, but for me it was P.E. I got to go out, run around, not sit still, not be quiet. And one of the great things about junior high is this. They have you try all the different sports. And so one of the things that we, we did was run hurdles, you know. And so, again, like no one's really great at a sport in junior high. Maybe Le, like LeBron James or something. But, but very few have grown into their amazingness yet in junior high. So when you're trying the high jump or you're trying to hand off a baton or you're trying a swimming class or soccer or whatever, there's, there's worlds of just like, you know, variety in, in how people are doing. But running hurdles, particularly running hurdles in middle school, is just this great picture of growing up. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And, and Jesus ran the hurdles. Like Jesus went through this phase with us and so we can, we can glean from him. It says really clearly that he grew in body and mind. He grew socially and he grew in his spirit. Don't you get a sense that, that, that you know, a day in the temple, a couple days in the temple, being here for the feast wasn't enough for him? 
Like he just had these urgings and these longings and these desires. And he had a long enough leash now. He's not a little child being told here and there. And he just lingers where his heart wants to go. What he's doing is he's, he's in a, he's in a, a listening response. He's asking questions and he's receiving from, from, from those in the temple. And here's a powerful thought. Jesus obeys what God was stirring and growing in him. Watch this. Even at the risk and consequence of having those that he loved most on the earth misunderstand him. Here's a little hint for life for us. The growing ache that God sometimes stirs. In fact, I think this should be more normative. I think it is normative for those just just drawn by the Spirit to, to, to go wherever He leads, that the aches and the desires and the places that He leads us and has our brains thinking about and dreaming about will regularly be misunderstood by those who are closest to you. And that's part of following Jesus. I think it's part of growing out of middle school. In middle school, you don't wear your favorite color. You wear whatever color is kind of generally accepted. You, you don't say what you really think. You, you, you say what's, what's not going to get you know, laughed at in the wrong way. I wonder how many Christians just don't grow up out of middle school. God stirred some things up, but they shut it down because they fear man more than fearing God. I would say this to a brand new Christian, to an old Christian. You keep in step in the, in the spirit, you will disappoint those around you. And you know what? Often it's for the glory of God. Often without you knowing, I, I hope that when I die, I hope someone says at my funeral, you know what, Dave used to annoy me that he would talk about this so much or that he did this. It actually brought great conviction to my life. So, so I, I think when someone really just gets a hold of this and makes decisions that look like the spirit's in control and not our fleshly comforts in control, that people don't understand that. They actually advise against it. They tell you how unwise it is to be doing this. All right, let me move on. So, growing up like Jesus is this. It leads you to places that people don't understand. Verse 50, they didn't understand what he meant. Let me give a, a couple of messages. First message is to our church. Middle school is a profound time of trying to figure out your identity and figure out what you'll do or become. Church, can I just say something super, super obvious? It is providential that we are sitting right now hundreds of yards from a middle school. Our closest neighbors are walking through what many of us in this room started with, which was some difficult, painful things. Some of you wished like crazy. You just had an adult that loved you and cared about you and loved the Lord Jesus and was motivated in a pure way to just be a friend and walk through it with you. Some of you, because you had that, it has shaped your life for the good. Right next door is a middle school. As church leaders, it's on us to be praying and sort of steering and thinking and spotlighting. But church, collectively, it's to us to say, God, what are we doing to this community of hundreds of souls that are going through a really challenging season in life? How can we care for them? How can we love them? How can we tell them about you? There's huge power in this season of life 
We support the, the Burlsons, Ryan and Amanda. Amanda was in Becky's small group. I was her youth pastor. She was in junior high. Do you know what she wanted to do in junior high? Be a missionary in Africa. That's what she did. God put that dream in her in junior high. We've adopted some children. Do you know why we've adopted children? Because God put a dream in Becky's heart. She had a picture from God that she would have 10 children around her dinner table as a wife and mom, and the faces looking back at her were different colors. Junior high. In junior high, I attended a very large church. Our youth group was uh, about double the size of our entire church. I went every other week because my parents were split up. I lived on the west side of town pre-85. And I got an invite from our youth pastor to attend a small gathering in a living room of maybe 10 kids. And the invite said something like this. We see in you, I see in you, leadership ability and quality. And I want you to come to a meeting and discover how you might be able to serve and grow in in that. I genuinely thought he had the wrong person. I had no idea. True story. I had no idea our youth pastor even knew my name. You know what I did? I received the invitation. I ended up becoming a middle school pastor at that same church. That was planted in me. That was, that was handed to me in middle school. So right now, this season of life that our kids are going through is a massively important um, part of life about their identity, about what they'll become, for good or for evil. Some of you would say, man, most of my 20s and 30s were trying to undo what was handed to me in middle school. What about on our watch, church? What if we could impart some truth to the middle schoolers who are, who are right next door? That's next door. How about in our own church? We have a thriving community of middle school students at this church. Did you know that? They're off at winter camp right now, some of them. Every Tuesday night, every other Tuesday night, they show up here and fellowship around the word and do crazy junior high things. What if hordes of people gave them the gift of really seeing them and really listening to them and not overlooking them and not saying, hey, one day you'll be a contributing member of society by our body language? Let me say this. If you love Jesus and are walking in the Spirit and you think making disciples is fairly important, right there you qualify as potentially a phenomenal youth leader to these kids. You don't have to drive a cool car, have a goatee, play guitar, know who the latest rock bands are. These are the qualifications. Talk about low-hanging fruit, church. They're already here. They said, they said amongst us every single Sunday, Action item on that. Talk to Ben if God's stirring for you to, to, to make a difference here in our church or next door. How about a message to parents? Let me say this. Joseph and Mary were God-fearing, God-loving people. They didn't have to tell us that explicitly. It just oozes. It spills out of us, whether we want it to or not. How do we know that? Jesus said this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's Leviticus 12. Purification rites for the mom 33 days later at the temple. Uh, setting apart your firstborn to the Lord. That's Exodus 13. Naming the boy Jesus. That's per the angel's instruction. Sacrificing a pair of doves as prescribed for the poor. And here, dutifully going to celebrate the feast of Passover at the temple. At great personal cost to go and travel, load up the family, get there, that whole deal. 
So Joseph and Mary were God-fearing people and, don't miss this, both and, they were imperfect, sinful people. The text records they misunderstood Jesus. They had no idea what he was even talking about. They had one agenda for him. He had something totally different going on. He had his identity settled more at age 12 than they ever did. They were the parents. And they lost him for Pete's sake. So so don't miss this. God-fearing, God-loving people are imperfect, sinful people. And don't miss this. In the midst of all of that, God is able to work. There's a great article called Beware the Idol of Parenting Success. I found it December 26th on our Gospel Coalition app that I use. It's by Christina Fox. Beware the idol of parenting success. Here's what, here's what can happen. Parenting, become your, parenting can become your out or it can become an idol. It can become an out because of this. I've watched parents do this. They pour in their blood, sweat, and tears into nurturing and kindling the fire of love for God in their child. And then in the teenage years, the child absolutely rebels against them, God, and everyone else. And they look around dumbfounded. No matter what they said in their heart of hearts, they thought their child was a math formula. You punch in these numbers, you get this result. (laughs) Friends, we don't own our kids. We're, we're, we're stewards of them. They're their own individual store, uh, soul. God's writing their own story there. So sometimes this has led parents to check out on church. Check out on the Bible. Check out on their faith. And sometimes, you know this storyline, check out on each other and the institution of marriage. Family blows apart. Partly because they have thought this was the last chapter. My encouragement, if you're in that season, God's not done writing the story yet. And it was never about your child becoming a Christian. That's not up to you. Any of you raised the dead lately? No hands, no hands, okay. Because we don't even bring ourselves back from the dead spiritually. That's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit animates us to life, to find the things of the Spirit beautiful. So don't, don't make your, your kids an idol. By, by the way, kids are terrible gods. They grow up and move away, Right? And you watch this. People pour their whole life into that kid. And then shock of shocks, they have their own ideas. And shock of bigger shocks, they want to move as far away in the country as possible on a map from you. All right. Let me give a quick message to children. Um, From Martin Luther's small catechism, let me read this. The fourth commandment, you must honor your father and mother so that things will go well with you and you will live long on the earth. Here's what he writes. What does this mean? We must fear and love God so that we will neither look down on our parents or irritate them, but will honor them, serve them, obey them, love them, and value them. And I would add, neither do we revere them as ultimate. That's putting our parents sort of in place of God so that disappointing them would be a bigger deal than disappointing God. The sinful heart would either scorn our parents or deify our parents, kind of go off in those two directions. What's kind of interesting is I've, had, I've, I've drawn the ire of parents of adult kids because they saw me as the one putting the idea in them to move their precious children and grandchildren out of the country to go do something for God's work. 
or that somehow I'm the one responsible for putting this whole adoption idea in their mind, and it's going to really screw up their family. I've watched adult children wrestle with almost being back as a little kid and going, I don't want to disappoint mom and dad. But I sense God calling me to stay at the temple for a few more days and have to make that choice of saying, I'm going to honor God even if those around me misunderstand me and I disappoint them. Here's what else it means. It means this. That we can, as children... We can obey in the season it's appropriate to obey when we're there and honor for a lifetime sinful parents. So some kids in our church are growing up with unbelieving parents. And Jesus shows a model, not of unbelieving parents, of actually God-fearing parents, but imperfect parents. And he shows a model of how we can walk in obedience and honor even when there's misunderstanding and outright you know, sin going on in that person's life. When I tell an unbelieving child, middle school or high school or college student, show your love for God by being obedient to them, honor your heavenly Father by honoring them, almost immediately, you, you probably have this going on in your soul, but, 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 but! And here's what I think is some good advice. No buts. Like, just sit with that first. Time out, silence, Just sit with that and receive that. Isn't it like an indication of our sinful heart that we immediately want to get to the butts? Now, are there some exceptions to that? Absolutely, here it is. If any authority, if any authority instructs you to do something counter, clearly counter to God's higher authority, then you you disobey. You disobey out of reverence for God. You disobey in the spirit of, of Jesus Christ. So it's not, you know, ah, gotcha. I don't have to obey that one. But I think our quickness to want to, um, to, to get to all the exceptions to the rule just reveals a rebellious heart in us. We're going to move into a time of communion. And what I want to do is this. I want to participate in something, like with our bodies, that illustrates the point being made that we only have one story from Jesus' childhood. And here's what I mean by that. I want to practice what this passage teaches, not by what it records, but by all that is skipped. It's really telling that we have one story from Jesus' childhood. Musicians, how important are rests in music? If you just have nonstop notes, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't make any sense. Rests are really important. In a story, there's vast importance to what's not said so it doesn't clutter up what's, what's said. So if you look at the Bible, if you look at the Gospel writers specifically, there is a shining spotlight on the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, the suffering of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you run the numbers, here's what you would say. A third of Matthew is on the cross and resurrection. A third of Mark is on the cross and resurrection. A quarter of Luke is on the, uh, on the cross and resurrection. And nearly half of the Gospel of John is on the final week of Jesus' life. In fact, um, about a third of the Gospel of John, 
One-third of the, of the record is on one day near the end of his life. Do you see it's all tilting and pointing toward Jesus being most revealed and glorified in the last week of his life? That the cross and resurrection are the story. I love this quote. Andy Nacelli says this, The Gospels are essentially passion narratives, passion is a word for suffering, passion narratives with extended introductions. The Gospels are passion narratives with extended introductions. So here's what I want to say, church. Even as we read and study and ponder and meditate and imitate the life of Jesus, let's collectively emphasize what God has emphasized. The Bible doesn't give us tons about his middle school years. You know why? We've moved on from middle school. In fact, the middle school narrative, these first words point already to the life, work, mission, and person of Jesus Christ in the cross. We're going to sing a song right now, and the way we're going to celebrate communion is this. While the song is going, I want you to get up. I want you to take the elements. You can take it here and put your cup back, or you can bring it back to your seat and just take it when you're ready. But you have one song to do this. I want you to get up and physically do it. I want there to be a sort of an act of will of you to get up and do it. Think about this. Being God's own son and being about the Father's business would lead Jesus to the cross. Fast forward to a garden one day. When what it means to be about the Father's business would mean laying aside his own will. That there was a yielding to that. Not my will, but yours be done. God, as we commune with you, as we celebrate our union that we have with you, God, I pray that the silence that we offer, the words that we offer as we sing, God, standing up and walking to the table, partaking of bread and juice that signify the broken body and poured out blood on behalf of us. God, that even as we look at a story of you in middle school, God, we would think ahead to how you changed the world. You didn't change the world by being a good model student or giving us some parenting techniques or working on the family. God, you changed the world by becoming our substitute and that's what we celebrate right now. That's what we gather around and set our minds on.